You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady. I'm joined in studio by Billy Galanko. How are you doing, Billy? I'm doing very well today, Brady. Excited to be back for another week of the pod. Did you have anything in your glass last night? Do you, do you drink wine on Mondays? No, I, I'm not. I'm a, kind of one of those weird folks that doesn't really drink with every meal, like a mm. traditional wine drinker, European would, but was able to taste some some fun things last weekend. And then I'm going to start ramping up probably today my studying for the that sparkling and fortified, just more active, oh, nice. active study tasting. So we'll have something. I have, I'm thinking sparkling. Shiraz and Lambrusco tasting this weekend just to get my sparkling ah. reds down pat. Yeah, so it's good. It's getting a little too well. Where I'm at, it's getting too cold to drink sparkling reds. Yeah, it feels feels like a feels like a late summer thing. That doesn't make any sense. You know, that's why you transition from your your sparkling whites, which you should probably drink all year. Champagne should always be consumed. Um, mm-hmm. But then the reds, that's the perfect segue into winter. You know, they're still, they're still, you know, warm and earthy and, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can, what's, what's your, what's your thought on mulled wine? I love mulled wine too. Do you? Okay. Okay. Have you ever had like, so I don't know the tradition of this, but white mulled wine? Mm, yes. Yes. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily the same mulling spices. It's similar. But when we were in with like Austria last year, when we went to like Paris for New Year's, if, if you go to any of those European like Christmas markets, they'll have like warm wines that are fruited and, and mold in certain senses. But some are white, some are red. You do have the What's what, Yeah, we had it at a, have a German Christmas festival. Well, it's like a market, German market down by the harbor in Baltimore here. And they had both white and red. And I was really surprised because I'd never. Yeah, I didn't know about the white as being kind of a thing. The white was actually really good. But I don't, I mean, it's just, that's not quite my thing, like the spice and the sweet, but it is warming. It helps. It helps. Yeah. When you're in a place where you don't, you didn't drive there. Like if you're just walking around like a, a cool city or it's freezing out and you can, you're going to walk home. It's nice to have that in your hands and it warms up, but just having yeah. a glass and then hopping in your car and driving home is kind of, kind of weird. I actually will say it did pair well with the bratwurst and sauerkraut. That was yeah, that that was nice actually. I think like the the spice and stuff drew out like I don't know if there's like sage or something else in the bratwurst. I think it was kind of cool. So yeah, I won't won't totally knock it. No, no, I did I'm... I did ha- I did have a run in with the sparkling the last couple of days because I've been you know f- we we just completed a renovation in our house and I moved my Eureka my wine fridge to you know that new room where it's going to stay. And I had to put, take all the bottles out and put them all back in. And I must've accumulated a ton of sparkling since like I had originally had it filled because I had to, you know, make all the shelves so much bigger to fit the bottles. So they're like, okay, you know, it's a, it's 180 bottle cellar. But then if you put Pinot Noir and like a bunch of sparkling bottles in there, it like reduces the capacity by like 40%. So that was kind of brutal. Now I have all these wines on my dining room table that I couldn't fit into my cellar so i need to come up with another solution or buy a second (laughs) or have a party have a really big party maybe well luckily like a a fair number of sparkling wines are 
delicious and not necessarily meant to be aged, depending on what they are anyway. So that might be a good excuse to keep them out or they don't necessarily need, you know, to be in pristine conditions laid down. Yeah. I kept all the like I kept all the Cremant out and like some kava and stuff like that. But like all the champagne I was able to fit. Like especially the stuff that's like I don't know, over seventy five dollars and stuff I kept made sure to keep it there. But the other stuff I kept out and I'll make sure to I'll have a party soon. New Year's. I'll just I'll just do it every New Year's. Well, on the burgundy bottle and champagne bottle note, that's a perfect transition into our our pre our topic and our interview for today. So we're going to talk about here in a little bit the LiveX brand power index. It's something you guys may have seen us reference on a number of our theses. Um, it's a it's an interesting ranking that LiveX does each year. So we want to share what the, kind of the parameters are and and the rankings just came out. So what what kind of updates were here for 2022? And then we have an interview. We kind of buried the lead with Berghound, who is basically the world's one of the world's most foremost reviewers, critics for Burgundy specifically, you'll see in any, he goes and spends six months a year there. So you'll see basically any high-end wine shop with high-end Burgundy referencing his scores alongside maybe William Kelly and just a couple others, but he is, he is truly kind of the go-to. So we're, it was kind of a, you know, surreal moment to have him on our podcast and we had a great interview. Yeah. Not many other critics have such you know, kind of a definitive voice in a single region, right? And maybe that's owing, maybe that's just perception based on owing to the fact that he only focuses on Burgundy. But, you know, his word kind of really is final, I think, in Burgundy, you know, in respect to how other critics function in, in their own regions. Well, he's just so thoughtful and he's been doing it for so long. He has access to everybody and he's known all these producers since, you know, like we'll, we'll give a little bit away, but he basically, he was telling us a story about how he had. When he started drinking, he had a $20 bottle of DRC Richborg, which I mean, and we, we talk about in the podcast, it's north of $4,000 now. So he's been going and visiting since when wines were that cheap. So he's seen them in their rise and he still is able to you know kind of meet all the vigneron and hang out with them and taste. And he spends so much time. He's not just tasting a little sample that maybe was sent around the world to give his reviews. So it's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking about, you know, drinking DRC for $20 back in the 70s, which would be about $100 today. Still a steal. So, yeah, well, the, the cool. $20 in, yeah, with yeah, inflation would still be $100. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Not the DRC is going to be $100. I was like, where <laughs> are you going back up to that producer we hung out with in Oregon? He was able to get DRC for cheap, but he's not allowed to sell it because he worked there. That's right. Yeah. Having legacy, legacy allocations, we'll call them. Mm-hmm. All right. So diving into the LiveX brand power index. So basically what, what it is, is LiveX takes a calculation or basically a scraping of all of the wine on its platform that had been traded. Any brand that has more than 10,000 pounds in total trading volume qualifies for the the ranking. So this year they looked through over 12,000 wines that were sold on the platform and then 1,694 brands, so 1,694 brands. Of those, 422 qualified for consideration. So from those, there was enough trade volume. So that's basically already culling down. You have already investment-grade wines traded on the secondary market, and we're already culling down to the top third of those, even better, top best of the best. And then those wines are analyzed for price performance year over year, the number of wines and vintages traded, and the average price of the wines that were traded. 
So what that has really kind of flowed into over the years, for a really long time, it was dominated by Bordeaux. And as the markets continued to expand, more and more wines from different regions have kind of entered the top 100 and kind of gained strength. And this year, it was basically the story of Burgundy. Burgundy had six new entrants into the top 100 and makes up a majority of the top 10 as we see it. The other strong performer was Champagne. They didn't really have any new entrants into the top 100, but all of the entrants that were in there moved up in the rankings overall. And this is amongst strong competition. They made the note in here that all of the wines in the top 100, obviously to kind of qualify, this makes sense, but they all rose in price anyway. So basically, we're just saying these wines had a great year and they actually rose in the rankings even higher than some of their other competitors. Yeah, I think that affirms a thesis that we've held for a long time and that others, actually, we talked about this in the interview we had with Dylan and Bradley from Alton Insights, that the top assets, the most rare assets, the top assets, and the most expensive by product of those things, uh, assets are the ones that typically, you know, have the best performance over time. And so we see that kind of, you know, like you mentioned, these top 100 brands are all improving in price at, you know, relatively consistent rates. Yeah. So let's let's go through the top 10 quickly here. Our interview with Burkhound was fairly long, so I don't want to keep everybody too long. So the top 10 was Loire, Arnaud Lachaud, Laflave, Rousseau, Pierre Roche, Dom Perignon, Louis Roederer, Louis Roederer, obviously powered by Cristal and their other champagnes they have. Coming in at eight was DRC, nine was Jacques-Frédéric Mounier, and number 10 was Krug. Nipping on Krug's heels at number 11 was also Salas, which is another champagne, which we also had a collection of. So as you can see, made up of all Burgundy and champagne, pretty, pretty cool to see. Um, Loire is number one again for the second, third year in a row. But what's interesting to kind of consider is a bunch of these, the fact that so many of these wines are traded, these all wines are still made in minuscule quantities, a lot of these Burgundy wines. I think the one that's made in the larger volume in here might be like, you know, there's Dom Perignon has made it a, a fairly large clip in Louis Roterer. I mean, out, out of the out of the top 10, I would say those are the highest volume, even though most of these are small compared to, you know, you picture your really mainstream stuff. But I think that's that's, that's really interesting. It just goes to show how much demand there are for this limited quantity yeah. of wines. It's both tr- like driven volume as well as value. Yeah, and uh, I mean, standing out to me is Arnaud Lachaud, or Lachaud overall ranking in 2021 was 62nd, and this year coming in at number two, rising 60 places, which is pretty significant now. Yeah, well, they had an average market price increase of over 400%. So over 450%. That'll, that'll do it, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> But Priya Roche, am I saying that right? Also moved up from 38 to number five. And Jacques-Frédéric Mounier, Mounier moved up 47 to 9. So really big moves from those Burgundy producers. Yeah. And we, we were talking a little bit offline, too. Everybody should go check out the, the Priya Roche labels. It's very interesting. I, I love they have a very cool modern art type bottom label. And then their top label is just a very simple. Brady called it a strip label. It looks like somebody just it's took a labeling some, machine. Some, yeah, something you printed off of your Dynamo or Dyna. Dyna printer, whatever they're called. <laughs> yeah, you bring that to a dinner party and you could you know, stealthily <laughs> bring bottle. the nicest bottle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something that we haven't actually had, I don't think, in a in a vent collection yet is number 19, Chateau Ikem. I've been been asking for Ikem to be featured in, in some of our offerings. 
for some time now, and and they actually moved up in rankings 20, 29th in twenty twenty one and and nineteen this year. So that was interesting to me. Yeah, and it's it's good to see. I think the reason we hadn't yet is we haven't seen one. We haven't been seeking it out just because of the the dessert wine market has been not quite as strong as some of these other markets, and we've wanted to kind of been be tracking that for in a more long a longer period. You might see Ekem, but you're not seeing a lot of other, you know, producers of a similar style of wine. So it is kind of kind of tough. So what well, we'll continue to monitor and, and see about that. But is there, on the is, there board, an e, is there an e is there an EP program for subterns? Do like do they sell that way or is that not 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 really? I mean they, they normally okay. they, yeah. they release at a certain time every year and, and there is access, but it's not like in conjunction with the regular Bordeaux side. So right. okay. I, I can't remember when it was, but we, you know, we get an email from the same negotiant saying, you know, 2019 Ikem was released this year. Do you want some? But it, it has kind of a different life track and you're not buying it while it's in barrel either. Oh, uh, okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, well, we can keep tabs on that. Maybe they'll change that over time. But I think they're tra- also trying to get people to drink Saturn younger, which is an interesting trend. On the Bordeaux side of things, though, the best performing chateau was in terms of price increase was Chateau Figiac, which is nice to see from our our first Saint Emilion collection with their with their upgrade to Premier Cru Premier Grand Cru Class A this year. They were able to outpace the rest of the Bordeaux market, so that was cool to see. Sassicaia is again the top Italian wine by value and volume combo, and then the Rhone Valley actually added a increased one in their rankings this year there was Chateau Reyes from the southern Rhone that was added this year so that was also interesting to see continued interest in the Rhone overall and even adding a spot so yeah that's cool I'm looking at I'm clicking through some of the other other rankings like within the different regions and seeing Salon near the top in Champagne as well didn't see that on the oh this is by trade price that's interesting so many different, so many different rankings. Salon's one of, one of my favorites. I, if I could choose a bottle that I would be able to have access to and be able to drink consistently, I would choose Salon. Have you had? It, have you had it ever? <laughs> well, sorry, I'm saying I'm saying that based strictly on what I've heard about it and how I would like my shelves in my wine fridge to look because <laughs> <laughs> Salon elevates. Yeah elevates any display i think it's just yeah my favorite label my favorite brand overall and kind of an aspirational type of bottle i should have said it that way that makes sense that makes sense now I'm, i've been in my studies kind of going through and there's a few of these really niche kind of producers that are making things very they're they're saying treating treating champagne more like a wine than you know a sparkling per se nowadays but mm-hmm. there's a bunch but i think Salas is still Tops on my list for now. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So awesome. Well, I think that is all I have for the LiveX 100 Brand Power Index. Anything else that you want to touch on for this? Not for this. I guess we'll just flag some things that we have upcoming, you know, from our team internally, some information that we have for investors coming up here towards the end of the year, and then we can kind of get into our interview. But just some things to keep on your radar, if you're an investor with us, or even if you're not, we will have our quarter four report coming out towards the end of this month, just overviewing the last quarter, which 
you know, is capping a really strong year for the wine market and a strong year, I think, for exits out of our offerings. So we'll have the quarter four report, which is similar to the rest of our quarterly reports that we release, but we'll also release a kind of year in review of both the wine, wine and whiskey markets generally, and then also of some of our collections that we've sold it, sold to our investors, but also sold and provided returns for. So we'll have an overview. We've performed really well, I think, relative to the broader LiveX index. I believe LiveX is somewhere around 13, 14% year to date. And Vint has been returning 20 plus percent from our distributions that we've announced this year. So yeah, I think we're excited to to release that report and kind of show the strength both of our platform, but also just the market generally. I think we're in a good place. All right. I agree. I, I can pull up the latest LiveX 1000 data just so that we can make sure we're accurate. It is 13.6 to date. Nice. So you were spot on. But yeah. So now we'll transition into our interview with Alan Meadows, a.k.a. Berghound. It, it was very exciting for me to be able to speak with him. I had emailed him earlier in the year, did not think that he would be able to because he's so busy and I know he's in high demand and he was he was more than happy to join. They shared some great stories from his travels there, his perceptions on how the wines and are developing with climate change, how the region's doing, what the impact the technology has had on the quality of wines over the past 30, 40 years and shared a lot of interesting insights and about Burgundy that I hadn't really thought about. So we we barely scratched the surface. We had talked offline afterward about having him on again next year, maybe just to hear some of his stories, because I think I could just listen to him for, for hours, go on about some of his unique experiences drinking there. Yeah, that's awesome. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. And here's Alan Meadows. All right, we're here with Alan Meadows, a.k.a. Berghound, one of the foremost reviewers and experts on Burgundy in the world. Thank you so much for joining. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I've I've obviously read your reviews. I've listened to your essential, I guess, essential Burgundy book a couple of times now. I'd love to hear about kind of how you got started and what kind of drew you into wine and then, and then Burgundy. It... <sighs> It was interesting because my father was an Air Force officer, career Air Force officer, and we were stationed in France. And so unlike most kids that were growing up in America in the 1960s, wine was always on the table. My father learned to cook in the French style and adopted a lot of the French eating habits. And for someone from the Middle West, the Midwest of America, it was unusual to always have wine on the table rather than cocktails. Mm-hmm. And so I was inculcated in that. And so it was just something I took for granted as opposed to something that was necessary to learn about. In fact, my father was very French in the sense that it was a beverage. It mm-hmm. wasn't something you talked about. So even later in life, after I started doing this and I'd pulled out some nice things for him and he would say, these are good, but we never really discussed them. So it was a different approach to, I, I don't want to say the American way of looking at it, but you know, today when you sit down with really nice bottles, enthusiasts right. tend to talk about them. You know, what's interesting about it, the vintage, the producer, this little nuance, you know, this comes from really old vines over here and not there. And 
my father would have none of that. And so <laughs> it was just a, something that was, was different from the way he did it. But anyway, that was the, the origin of my interest. And I became increasingly absorbed and enthusiastic. And so when I finally left the investment banking world, I had this idea and I was surprised that Erica would say, yeah, you know, follow your passion, <laughs> go. Because it's not everybody that would say, you know, go for four months at a time to a foreign country. And anyways, she was enthusiastic and liked the idea. And so we we did that. And it wasn't obvious at the time because I was going up against, in a, in a way, against the Wine Spectator, Robert Parker, Clive Coates, Steve Tanzer, and mm -hmm. several others that I'm probably not mentioning. But it was a different approach for another reason, which is that it was the first one of its kind to be really, really specialized. Mm -hmm. uh, all of those publications that I mentioned basically did the world. Right. Uh, or in Clive's case, you know, basically all of France, which is still considerable. And I just decided to do one thing. And before I launched my little project, I wrote to 20 of my geek, my bird geek friends and said, what do you think of something that'd be really specialized, no advertising, try and have perhaps a, a more sophisticated approach to things? You think that'll work? And it was 20 out of 20 that said, that's a brilliant idea, but it'll never work <laughs> because it's too specialized. In other words, the, the the strength of the idea was also its weakness, meaning that if you're really interested in Burgundy or Pinot Noir, then it was a great idea. But if you were interested in anything else, you weren't going to find it in the pages of Berghound. And so as a consequence, people were, were definitely thinking, you know, it, you might get off the ground, but it won't last. Right. But yet 23 years later, here we are. So it's funny how sometimes small ideas can work after all. So you were just very passionate from the outset in, in Burgundy, out of, out of everywhere in France as well? Yeah, it was the wines of Burgundy. I mean, like virtually everyone in that era, I won't say necessarily today, but in the era that I became interested in wine, which was the latter part of the 1970s, pretty much Bordeaux was what you had to know about if you were to be considered a connoisseur. Burgundy still was in the shadow of Bordeaux. Champagne was neither here nor there. You could be really good at champagne. People could say you were an expert, but I don't want to say nobody really cared, but it didn't have the weight that in Bordeaux and California, in spite of the fact that it had already had some, some good history after prohibition, it was still emerging in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a little dalliance here and there with, with various regions. But when I was getting my MBA, I was sufficiently passionate already to take a part-time job in a wine shop. I went to all the local wine shops, found the, the one that had the best selection and convinced the owner to give me a part-time job, which he was kind enough to do. And so I could stay around wine. Anyway, one of the, I convinced him to sell me the, the wines at cost. And he said, well, why would I do that? And I said, well, you can't sell what you haven't tasted. Mm. And so he was persuaded by that logic. And anyway, it was, um, 
four or five hours pay at the time, but there was a bottle of the 67 Domaine de la Romaine Conti Richebourg, which today is an extremely expensive bottle. But in 1978, when I had that wine, it was 20 bucks, a lot for a student. But it's incredible to think that a wine that today, current current markets, 4,000 mm-hmm. was 20 bucks. And in fact, in my first book, I put a picture of the tasting note and the and the label because books in those days about wine would have a little space where you could soak off the label and put it in and put your impressions like you were a, a real wine critic. Anyway, I just remember the price being 20 bucks. But the, the point being that when I had that wine, I saw a form of beauty that I had never seen before. Um, mm. I had an art history minor. I loved classical music, some of the performing arts. And so it's not like art in general, writ large, was a foreign concept. But here was a form of beauty that had never occurred to me because of all the wines I'd had to that point. I found them interesting. They were good. Obviously, I took a job in a wine shop, so I was enthusiastic. But this was something, you know, sort of where the the skies opened, the angels sang. So... I said, I have to see the people and in particular, the culture that created this form of beauty. So I got my MBA and first uh, first thing I did was to go off to Europe to uh, celebrate. And in that process, went to Burgundy and was so enthralled that I was supposed to spend three months going around the continent. And I spent two months in Burgundy <laughs> instead and you know, met some people they introduced me to people because the French, I think like most cultures, but the French in particular, admire people that are very passionate about something. And right. that was me, even though I didn't know squat, the basics, but beyond that, I didn't know anything, but they were patient. And so one thing led to another. I wasn't married at the time and I could pretty much do what I wanted to and for my vacations. And so I just started going all the time and you develop a little group of people where you can go and you can learn and taste and that's what i did i've heard the the i guess the people from burgundy in general compared to like the bordelais are a little bit more welcoming in general as a whole since it's more of a farming and hands-on community i feel like you would have maybe had a harder time doing that if you went to bordeaux right there's the there's no question at the time people this might be a, a bit off topic but People in the last couple of years have started to lament that Burgundy is now less welcoming than it used to be. When I started going, it's true. You could go anywhere, basically. Even the Domaine Le Romani Conti, Loire didn't exist then, at least in terms of a domain. But when I was going in the the 1990s, you could even go visit Lalu. Good luck today. (laughs) It just... I mean, part of it, to be fair to the Burgundians, I I did have, I won't cite the name, but I did have a discussion about this very topic with a very, very popular producer. And he said, you know, we, we do our best, but if I said yes to everyone who wanted to come, there wouldn't be a drop of wine left. Mm. And just to give a, a shout out to one that's extremely popular, which is Domaine Russo, Armand Russo. And I was talking again about this with Cyrielle, and she said, last year we did over 700 visits. You know, So we, we do our best, but we still have to say no to most people who want to come. But 700 visits. You know, yeah. Burgundy, for the most part, 
unless you're talking about the large merchants, the negotiants, are just structurally not set up to have a constant stream of visitors. Yeah, that's almost uh, two a day. Yeah, and in and what that really means is that because Burgundy tends to get visited in October, November. That's not the only time people come, but it that's when the majority of professionals go, wine merchants, you know, anybody that is involved in the world of wine beyond just being a an enthusiast. It tends to be five, six, seven a day, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, it's it's definitely a lot not like Bordeaux in that sense, you know, where you have somebody that's just dedicated. With that said, one of the things that has happened through rising prices has been the ability to build and finance much nicer wineries. And typically today now, as part of that, they will include a tasting room. Doesn't mean that they got the employees or even the wine to pour, but I I think Burgundy, while not like it used to be, is still trying to indulge isn't the right word, but at least play ball with what's called enotourism, you know, wine Mm -hmm. tourism, so that there still is a welcoming aspect to the Burgundians. Because there's an old saying, this isn't the beat on the Bordelais, but there's an old saying that in Bordeaux, everything is for sale, but there's something to drink. Whereas in Burgundy, everything's to drink, but there's nothing for uh, for sale because there's just so little of it. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was I was on your I'm just reading on your website and it's apparent to me that you're an accomplished writer and one of the ways that you describe Burgundy is to say it's fiendishly complex, frustratingly inconsistent. How does that take someone from an enthusiast to a critic? Because it seems like being a critic you would have to really dive into some of those complexities and inconsistencies. Was that daunting or how did you make that move from enthusiast to critic in such a complex region? Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, perhaps it's, you know, people enjoy pain. I don't know. Um, you know it's, uh, <laughs> where the complexity of the region, I mean, maybe just a reflection of my finance background, because I always enjoyed complex financial problems. And this is sort of the same thing where figuring out who does what well was fascinating. And one of the things that it's to be able to respond to the the question in a coherent fashion, one of the things that has changed enormously is the consistency of Burgundy. It used to be really, really inconsistent because there are, you could say it's a plus or you could say it's a structural deficiency relative to other wine regions because whenever you are basically using only one grape variety, you can't compensate with something else. Mm-hmm. You know, in Bordeaux, again, I, I'm sounding like I'm Bordeaux bashing, and I don't mean to. That's, <laughs> not, that's not the point. They make very good wine. But you have the possibility of using five different grapes. And so if it rains early, you don't use the Merlot, you use more Cabernet. If it rains late, well, you do the reverse. You know, but you have a margin for error. Um, mm-hmm. You have a what the French say, a marge de manoeuvre. You have, you know, maneuvering room. And in in Burgundy, you don't have that. And the great benefit is the purity and transparency of the wines. So, you know, when you taste a series of of well-made Burgundy, you can pick out these are different and why. 
You know, mm. and it's that nuance that either attracts geeks like me or people say, ah, it's, yeah, it's too much. I don't want to deal with all that. You know, it's just, I just want a glass of wine, which is, which is fine. That's great. But for those of us that like that nuance, then figuring out who was doing what well back in the day was a riddle of a sort. And that the use of only one grape variety with the cultural techniques that aren't nearly as well developed as they are today necessarily meant that some people did really well with certain parcels. The Burgundians today are still trying to figure out why, because these things, the vineyards themselves are incredibly old. They have been around for centuries and what was planted, how it was planted, what they call the Selexio Massal, which are the, the, the guys, because Mostly in those days, people are only farming a couple of hectares. So the, while it sounds to modern ears as though this is just you know folklore, people really did know basically vine by vine. And so they knew which vines did best where. Right. And so you could then propagate your vineyards when you had vines that died because almost no one just ripped up vineyards. In those, mm -hmm. It's it's mm -hmm. called repicage, where when you have a vine that either becomes diseased or is producing so little it's no longer economic or has outright died, you replace that vine. That is a very expensive way to do things, but it maintains a very high average vine age in, a, in your particular parcel. Today, when there are problems, a lot of people that are perhaps, perhaps less qualitatively oriented or the whole parcel is sick which with viruses can happen, you just come in with a bulldozer and you write it all out. The, that's from a cost perspective, it's very efficient. If you have to do that, it's, it's radical, but it's efficient. The problem is that you lose three years of production because you can't use the fruit, at least for an AOC wine for three years. And your vine age is really young. Obviously, you mean the whole thing when you start out is three years old. And right. You, while I have read some treatises about how it's just all bullshit that old vines give better wine, my experience would say otherwise. That one of the things that is so prized about old vines is the consistency of production. They never overproduce. You could almost make an analogy to a human being that, you know, when you're an adolescent, you have all this energy, which is great, but not necessarily wisdom to go with it. And the one of the things about old vines is they tend to auto-regulate and it's probably too technical to get into, but there are very good reasons as to why lower yields make better wine, especially with a, with what tends to be a thin skinned grape variety like Pinot Noir. That makes sense. In order it's to have things that are not dilute, you need a, a certain consistency in terms of of density and concentration. And while there are artificial ways to go about getting that, there are almost always negative aspects to texture and and fruit purity, because in order to get that, the manipulation is intrusive. So anyway, the ability yeah. to, to do that naturally is, is not as easy as it sounds, but it produces the best results. Kind of a, a question, a continuing question, maybe on consistency, if it relates, you tell me. But I, I looked and $20 in 1975 would be about 111 today. 
So still a margin off from the $4,000 that we discussed with that bottle of DRC. Yeah. It Does the increase in maybe just overall demand and maybe like secondary market demand and, and pricing overall, has that affected in your mind consistency or quality and in what direction from the 70s, just say, until now? Do you see any correlation between like the, those increases in pricing to... To or the quality it, of the actual product, or is it just uh, technology that goes or, along? Yeah, with it? right. Or technology, or some some other factor. Yeah. No, absolutely. For in fact, it, it's hard to believe, but if you take a look at my second book that I co-wrote with Doug Barzilay, I mean the the we talk about vintages, but we basically wrote a very specific wine-oriented history of Burgundy, and. Mm-hmm. We tried because there are, we started in 1845 because that's the oldest one that we had ever tasted. So we started there and went to 2017. And what we did was to divide the book up into 17 chapters, 17 decades, and to try and trace the major changes, what was really groundbreaking for each decade. Mm. And when you go forward, it's hard to believe, but for most of Burgundy's histories, the only people that made any money were the merchants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wine growers themselves didn't. That was the oil crisis of 1973 that changed things. And it's, I mean, Burgundy obviously has a very, very long history, and I don't mean to make it sound like this was the change, but you could argue, I think pretty persuasively, that if there is a moment in time where Burgundy fundamentally changed, it was 1973. And the reason that it is so dramatic in the history of Burgundy is because inflation soared because of of OPEC cutting off, basically cutting off energy to the developing or the developed world. And this caused soaring inflation and people stopped buying luxury items of all sorts, cars, but in particular wine in this case. And one of the things that caused is that you still had the traditional relationship in Burgundy of the big merchants that bought from the small producers. And the big merchants, their clients weren't buying wine, so they stopped buying wine. And the producers said, well, that's great. We understand, but eating is good. <laughs> and as a consequence, they said, we have to develop our own clients, our own private clients. And it's difficult to, to believe. In, in fact, to this day, I find it remarkable. But the number of domains that were domain bottling before 1973, I can count on this many fingers. Yeah. It's incredible that there were so few. In fact, you tell people that today when I give seminars and so forth, you tell people that they, you, I can see the disbelief in their eyes. Um, yeah, I always. No on, way. On that note, uh, yeah, they always true. make such a big deal about how early DRC was bottling their own wine. And, you know, we put that in some of our, our notes about the producer and something people are like, oh, yeah, everybody bottles their own wine. Why is that important? It's like, this is exactly why. And that was, <clears throat> it's not an accident that the 1970s, was probably just make sure I'm not about to say something stupid, but it might have been the worst decade of the entire 20th century. And that's true for a couple of reasons. One, it's because there were a series of really, really 
awful vintages. I mean, even today, you would say, oh, my God, even with all the technology that we have, you might have made something drinkable, but not much more than that. I mean, when you really think about it, yeah, that 72, 74, 75, 77, I mean, all four of those just absolutely undrinkable in terms of wines. Wow. But and the other reason is that people said the domain said, okay, we have to find clients, but they had never done elevage. Um, oh, yeah. They had never done bottling. They didn't have equipment, but there were just developed peripatetic bottlers that would go from domain to domain because these guys, I mean, they had always just sold. So they didn't have a lot of the equipment necessary. They didn't have the sales savvy, and they certainly didn't have clients for the most part. And so they weren't good at elevage. And the bottlers that came around were definitely belt and suspenders. You know, we're going to, because in those days, you, because I did my, just to give you an idea, I did my internship in Burgundy in 1994, not a great vintage. As it turns out, I learned a whole bunch of stuff about what you shouldn't do. So it was actually probably a better learning experience than to have gone in a perfect vintage. Mm -hmm. uh, but even as late as 1994, we didn't sort. You know, you took your secateur, your your little clipper, and you, know, you scraped the, the bunch a little bit, and whatever fell off, you figure it wasn't good. But, but you know, we were using the the classic Burgundian recipe of one third green, not ripe, under the idea that adds acidity. One third rotten. Well, under the idea that that adds sugar because they're, they're, you know, they're desiccated. And then you had a third that was pretty good. And you're not going to make great wine with that approach. But in the days of the negociants, you got paid for volume, not quality. Mm -hmm. And so there never was this emphasis on using only what the, the French call caviar, which is literally the best of the best, you know, but sorting, you would think that was something that had been long developed. It wasn't. Michel Lafarge told me one time that he was among the first to use a sorting table in 1975. And, but he said it really was just a metal table and an upside down rake where you push stuff along and tried to get the insects out or the twigs or the leaves. And he said 1975 was so bad, we finally gave up because otherwise there wouldn't have been any. Hirsch told me a story that he bought his first sorting table in 1993. This is now you know, 18 years later. Wow. And they were among the first sorting tables. And his father came out to see the new toy. And 1993 was a vintage where there was a lot of mildew, uh, mm. but there was a lot to throw out because mildew is bad for both reds and whites. And he was just throwing stuff off the table. And his father mm -hmm. came out and saw this and he, he said, idiot, what are you doing? And he started putting the grapes back on <laughs> because, again, this whole notion of volume was how you survived. Um, mm. So. The the reason that I finally get back to the essence of your question is that a lot of really bad wine was made, but the critical import of producers making their own wine, getting better at elevage, encouraging the bottlers to stop strip filtering or sterile filtering so that you weren't robbing the wine of, of its body and its potential to age successfully is also 
the moment when they, the producers writ large, realized that in order to get a client to come back, you have to have quality. Mm. And the way to have quality is to save the best stuff for yourself. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, the balance of power, economically and otherwise, started to shift between the negotiation community, because it used to be like this, and slowly it began to go like this, because the domains realized that they could make a really good product and they could sell it for a good price. And overall, they could make more money mm. if they did these things. But it was a slow transition. It didn't happen right away. There were a lot of people that were quite skeptical. I don't know. But all of a sudden, you see your neighbor doing really well. Then you were motivated to adopt those things. Yeah. So ultimately, um, if there is a good in the part that's not so good about rising prices to the the $4,000 range is that people were able to reinvest, buy better equipment, bottle differently, take risks that they wouldn't have taken before in the hopes of making better wine. And in particular, if there is one thing that has benefited or, or if we look at the Appalachian hierarchy of Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village, and regional, it's the regional wines that have benefited mm. uh, because now people can sell those at a reasonable price. I mean, I still remember an astonishing discussion with somebody who's very well placed in the Burgundian firmament arguing that we should just pave over everything that is classified as Bourgogne wow. because there's no interest, doesn't make good wine. I can still remember driving on the Route Nationale and everything, if you're headed south, everything to the left, meaning the east side of the Route Nationale, that was all in what they call en friche, meaning that they had literally just let the vines die off and be taken over. Hmm. And so it was either planted to another form of agriculture or simply just left to, to nature. Today, you don't see that. Wow. And so you can buy good quality Bourgogne now. It costs a little more. But the quality is there. and That didn't used to be the case. And so while if there's burgundy bashing in the sense of prices having gone over the top, and that's there's certainly a grain of truth there, the other side of it that tends to be ignored is the bottom of the hierarchy, which is now something that you can buy with a reasonable amount of confidence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I also think for, for our listeners who may not know, Elevage also is the time resting in barrel. I think in French, it literally means like raising the wine, like you're raising a child. Right. And an élève is a student. And so the idea is, you know, sort of you're taking the wine to school and it is improving before you ultimately put it in bottle. So on, on the concept and topic of aging, I listening to your book, you always give kind of your recommended time and bottle that you would hold most wines or when you would think things would be ready in their drinking window. How How does... The price of Burgundy now and the quality, like, and, and the time it needs to really develop to the point where some of these really sing kind of overlap. I, I think that's, we, we've kind of, we were, I emailed Laurent Ponceau last year to see if he wanted to talk about one of our collections that we featured his wines. And he's like, no, my wines are for drinking. They're not meant for the secondary market or holding. But when you do have a wine that needs to, you know, have many years to develop, do you think? How does that work? Like in your mind, how does you see the secondary market or somebody holding on to those rather than somebody just buying a case and keeping it in their cellar maybe for 15, 20 years? As much as I like Laurent Ponceau, I have we've been 
colleagues for a whole lot of years. I was visiting Laurent well before I started Berghound. I know him extremely well. And he's always had this idea that, like, for example, I'll quiz him on his chapelle, for example. There are a couple of climats in it. And that's this isn't the, the place to get into that. But, you know, I asked him one time, where are they? He, he didn't know. He just says they're in Chappelle. And but what part of Chappelle, it didn't really interest him. He has the this the same approach to wine. It's for drinking. And so his notion that there is no best time, there just is a time. And so drink my wines and enjoy that. Hmm. It's an approach. And for Laurent, it makes sense. It also makes sense when he's arguing for people to drink his wines because then they need more of them. Right. <laughs> it's all I can say is it's a point of view, but it's not one that I share because I think that an awful lot of potential is left on the table if you don't age them. I think Burgundies have the most to say when and each wine, each terroir is a little different. Certainly what the Burgundians call the le, le pâte de vignon, literally the winemaking signature. You know, are you making what's called vin de gare, wines that are meant to age for a very long time? Are you making vin primeur, something that is meant to be approachable young, enjoyed for its fruit? You can make arguments in favor of both. And if you had a seller, you'd probably want to be buying at least some of both for the simple reason that if it's Tuesday night and you want something that's good to drink, if all you've ever bought is Van Gaal, you really don't have anything to open. And so that's why I always tell people that Americans used to be the worst about this. I think the Asians have now inherited what we finally figured out they're in the process of figuring it out too especially with all the information that's available today that having a mix of vintages is the best way to go because some vintages are meant you know to hold for 20 years other vintages you can largely open when they're young they also cost less right typically than the celebrated vintages and you pay a premium for that and you should but in any event, it, having this this mixture, I think, is the way to build an intelligently collected or curated cellar. It's it's with respect it's to the you know Laurent's argument that if you feel like drinking this, it's the best time. And sure, but just to echo what I said a moment ago, that wines tend to peak. And determining when that is, I mean, it's not a science. It's a, a bit of a feeling. It also depends on how cool you keep your cellar, et cetera, et cetera. But Grand Cru's open before 10 years of age is generally, other than you know, for research purposes, you're kind of wasting the money that you spent. And if you're laying out $4,000 for, say, the Richebourg we talked about, if you're opening that before 15 years of age, you're leaving some of your investment on the table, in my opinion. Right. It's it's difficult for, in my mind to be flippant about, you know, either cellaring or investing in secondary markets and these kinds of things when like you, like you, the, the, these wines are being sold from producer for hundreds and in secondary markets for thousands. If it was quote unquote, just for drinking, I mean, 
water is just for drinking. It's a dollar or a bottle. It seems that there's some <laughs> a dis- disconnect there. So yeah, I, th- I think I agree. It's a bit disingenuous to make that argument. Yeah, to, well, at least at least to be so flippant, uh, you know, ah, drink it whenever this kind of thing. Yeah, it seems to be a bit disingenuous. I agree there. So on the the topic of kind of vintages and I guess climate in general, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what what climate change has you know kind of led to currently in like the styles of wine and where you see it kind of going as well as the potential for other regions that may have been on the margins maybe even it's like you know some of the Haute, the Cote de Nuit or some of the higher elevation stuff that maybe will be warm enough in the future I'd love to get your perspective on how Burgundy might change it's that's a tough question to answer with any specificity. We can all imagine things and with at least some degree of success, I suppose, because there is just like with renewable energy in terms of all of the experimenting that's going on, he is doing the same thing. It's its own microcosm in that sense about If you go to Burgundy today, you will see that a lot of people are playing with trellising differences. Some are arguing that it's better to go low. I mean, one of the reasons that Burgundy historically always trellised very low. I mean, whereas if you go to Napa, for example, it tends to be very high. And that simply is, do you want the warmth of the earth at night to help ripen your fruit? Or would you prefer it to have less of an effect, saving more acidity? And so some argue in Burgundy, you know, I want my fruit to get ripe as quickly as possible. And historically, all the research that was ever done was how can we get a qualitative clone to ripen sooner? Because the longer your fruit is out in the vineyard, the more risk you're taking. You know, once it gets close to being ripe, all the things that can happen are bad, save for one, which is it gets perfectly ripe. But you have predation, you have the risk of hail, you have disease pressure, you can have a windstorms. I mean, it happens in Burgundy, believe it or not, there are tornadoes. In other words, all this stuff that can happen is, isn't good. And so it's a form of risk reduction to get your fruit in the couvery earlier as opposed to later. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether you are getting the best quality fruit because it ripens earlier. That's a question. You know, the famous hang time question where vintages with long hang times tend to have the ripest, what they call phenolics. It's not worth going into here, but basically all of the solids that are in wine, we think of it as a liquid, but there are actually solids in wine as well. And those being ripe give you a more interesting mouthfeel. You tend not to have the astringency and so forth. That was one of the problems when you go back in time, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was relatively rare to have more than one great vintage a decade because most of the vintages that weren't great tended not to be ripe. And it's hard to make anything really, really interesting if the fruit's not ripe. So this trellising change will have a huge impact going forward in terms of climate change. Is it better to go high? Is it better to go low? What about my spacing? What about the actual clones that I'm using? What about the rootstocks? Because again, it's a little technical, but the viruses that are attacking the vineyards today, in some cases, are wiping out 5% of a vineyard each year. That means in 20 years, you've replaced the whole vineyard. 
that is a serious concern. And also, nobody knows exactly how much more extreme things are going to become. And so today we're looking at these changes in the microcosm of what's occurred because it's very difficult to project how hot is hot. Mm. So, you know, some people, I call them defeatist, but you could say they're just visionaries are imagining that we will have to abandon Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir in favor of Syrah or other varieties that are better adapted to really, really warm and dry growing conditions. And so far, it's not really the heat that's been the problem in Burgundy. It's the dryness. Hmm. And Pinot Noir is not especially well adapted to really, really dry growing conditions. Some people have tried to argue that the vines themselves are adapting. But if, and I'm sure that they've adapted in one sense, which is to say that they've developed deeper root systems to try and find water so that the leaves don't fall off. I mean, one of the the adaptations that a vine has is that it's willing to sacrifice the babies, the fruit, in order to survive for next year, because, you know, that's a survival strategy. You know, but the idea that the vines are adapting genetically isn't true. I mean, they're all clones, so they're not different. They don't change. What is changing in terms of a lot of, of research is rootstock which because everything in virtually everything in in france is grafted in fact europe in general is grafted it has to be because phylloxera still exists right so how that all plays out i can't say Hmm. but we've had some very interesting results that can't necessarily be explained you look at 2020 really ripe vintage but the acidity is incredible exactly why that occurred people have theories people think well you know the nights were cooler and so acidity was preserved and so forth but you had three really warm vintages in a row in 18 19 20 yet the wines of 18 don't resemble 19 which doesn't resemble 20. so in spite of the fact that you can sort of generalize about very hot very dry doesn't necessarily give you the the same wine and mm. so also people are are have become much more vigilant about trying to protect the fruit from the direct rays of the sun that's always complicated when you have disease pressure because on the one hand you want airflow so you want fewer leaves on the other hand you want the leaves because they work like an umbrella to to shade the the fruit so it doesn't bake these are all competing interests and i when i give symposiums on viticulture i always say that there's no free lunch you know you do one thing there is an effect that effect may be desirable but often there is a secondary effect that you don't want right with respect to this notion that the oat coat or terroirs that are on the upper end of the slope are the future grand cruz i don't believe that Mm. Um, the reason I don't believe that is because the soils tend to be thinner. Yeah. And so you have even more what they call stress hydrique, which literally is hydric stress. And that leads to what the French call blocage, which is where the photosynthetic process stops or slows down to the point where you're not getting the phenolic ripeness that you want. 
because the plant just says, screw it, you know, I'm done. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just tired and then there's no water. And so it is, again, from an evolutionary perspective, an adaptive technique that the, the vine uses to survive to the next vintage if necessary. And you have in certain vintages where blocage comes and goes, because if there's a little bit of rain or if there's more dew in the morning, there are ways that the photosynthetic process can switch back on, which is what you want. But it is always, it's the best way to describe it. Sometimes you find wines that are intuitively awkward, meaning that you can have typically fruit, the aromas that are extremely ripe, yet you get flavors and tannins that are green. And that's almost always a result of this what they call the blocage, meaning that the fruit baked, but the acidity and the, the phenolics never got ripe. Mm-hmm. And so that's a wine that is drinkable, but it's not harmonious. You know, you have this difference between one level of ripeness, whereas the structural elements are not ripe. Oh, fascinating. That makes sense. So, I mean, yeah. is, is the, but on the plus side, I'm just so I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The old code is definitely doing better than it used to because mm-hmm. now it gets ripe. Right. I mean, you used to have, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if the, the coat, the best suited vineyards didn't get ripe, the old coat definitely didn't get ripe. It's too cool. Even though the, the viticulture up there tends not to be the same as what's used on the slopes. It's not as dense, tends to be trellised higher, but it's definitely more successful than it used to be. There's definitely freshness, but if climate change in Burgundy manifests itself in even more dryness, then I don't see how the oat coat does any better than the slopes because, you know, the soil depths just aren't there. Yeah. Um, I I, I can definitely see that. How, so over the past can you give us a very quick and dirty, like the last five vintages, kind of how they, and I know it varies so much region by region, but you know, maybe just how the last five turned out for, in your perspective, for reds and, and for whites. Sure. When we start with 16 and go to 21, is that, is that five? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can give uh, us a preview. I know you just tasted some 21s while you were over uh, there. Yeah. In fact, I just got back from Burgundy a week ago where I was in the, the Cote de Nuit for, for two months and yeah. tasting 2021s. If we start at 16, 16 and 21 have parallel simply because of the, the immense damage that was done by frost. Hmm. That is, I didn't mention this, but to your prior question, one of the, the big, big, big risk, in fact, perhaps the biggest risk of all, we all focus on the heat and the dryness, but the growing cycle, the vegetative cycle starts earlier. Whereas Burgundy historically has had risks with frost. And now if you've got bud burst uh, at the end of March, beginning of April, I mean, that's just a classic recipe to have everything burned by frost. And that's what happened in 16. That's what happened in, in 21. There are ways to fight against this. You know, in Chablis, they use aspersion. There's a huge lake there. That's artificial, but nonetheless, there's water. But in, in the Côte and the Côte d'Or, there's no lake. You can't use that. You can put out candles, but these, one, are not especially eco. It's expensive. It takes an enormous amount of manpower 
to protect a hectare. And so right now, that's okay for protecting one or two or three parcels that are the most prized. So most people say, okay, I'm going to protect my Grand Cru's. Or if I have a flagship wine that's identified with my domain, that's a Primer Cru, I'll protect that. But you can't protect everything. So that is a a big, big problem that definitely affected 16 and 21. And one of the, the factors that has exacerbated the price rise that we were talking about is the, the lack of volume. 16 made lovely wines. Just because it frosts doesn't mean that the vintage can't be good, but it does mean that you almost certainly are going to have less volume. The other thing that is less appreciated about what frost does is it tends to weaken the vine. And so since so many people have, which is, I think, on on whole, a good thing, have gone to either organic or biodynamic farming, where you basically, your only tools to counter disease pressure of widium or mildew or at the end of a harvest, botrytis, rot, basically, are copper and sulfur. And now there are limits as to how much, because even though people say, well, copper is a natural element, you know, it's it's natural. Yeah, but you can have copper toxicity in the soil too if you use too much. And so like anything, some's good, too much isn't. And so vines tend to be weakened by the frost and therefore they cannot protect themselves naturally against the three main forms of cryptogamic diseases and so you have to have tractors that are compacting the soils they're burning more fuel and they're putting more copper and and sulfur on the vines and you know it's it's an approach but back to what i said a few minutes ago there's no free lunch you can get a lot of good out of not using chemicals but sometimes you have to treat more often and so if you look, look at it from the standpoint of where is my impact on the environment the lowest? It's not necessarily always with organic or biodynamic farming principles. Hmm. So, but I've digressed too much, sorry. Um, (laughs) But 16 made lovely ones. They're dense. And while there are the parallel similarities in terms of growing season, just like I observed a minute ago with 18, 19, and 20, having similar growing seasons, but not at all the same wines were produced. 16 and 21, while you can draw those parallels again in terms of the growing season, did not produce the same style of wine. 16 is much denser. Hmm. Sometimes when you have very low yields, um, you can get that, you you sense that in the wines. There's this textural component, and that has to do with what I call the solids to liquid ratio. In a classic burgundy, it's basically two-thirds liquid one-third solid. In 16, that ratio was more like 50-50. So you really taste the density. 21 had the lowest yields for many people in their entire career. So that would include 16 and 2003, which at the time was, oh my God, there's there's no wine. 21 was lower. Yet the solid to liquid ratio is probably more like 75-25. 21, in spite of the fact that there's no volume, it's not dense. Hmm. So two very different styles of of wine. 17 is, it wasn't super dense, but from the standpoint of classic Burgundies out of the period of 
2016 to 2020, it produced the most classic wines, certainly with respect to whites. The reds aren't super dense, but they're harmonious. Today, if you were to go to a restaurant and you had, and in Burgundy, a lot of the restaurants, I mean, 2017 is an old vintage now. It's kind of sad in a way, but yeah. you know, even in the US, you go with somebody that has a decent selection of Burgundy, 17 is probably the one you'd want to order. Mm-hmm. You get the most pleasure out of it because it's not as dense between 16 and, and 20. Moving to 18 very quickly, very ripe. In terms of the style of wine, it's probably the ripest out of 18, 19, 20. It was a big harvest. And it's one of the things that put a smile on people's faces because coming out to that, you didn't really have vintages that were all that generous. And so 18 is around, you can find it, but you definitely have to like a, a riper style of burgundy. Interesting. Uh, between 18, 19, and 20, it's my least favorite just because right now there's there's not much terroir. It's basically a vintage that I would say was dominated by the climactic effects more than any vintage probably since 2009. Hmm. And so you're drinking 2018 as opposed to drinking Richebourg or, you know, Romney Saint-Vivant or I also... I'm less of a fan on the whites, even though there are some people that have started to say, ah, the whites are more interesting than you would think. And the, But again, lest I be guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, one of the things that long, uh, long tasting or long experience with some very ripe vintages in the past, the terroir eventually emerges. Makes its way back. Um, if you look back at at what was the 2003 of the air 1947 notwithstanding the the technical problems that they had then you can taste differences today Um, now granted 1947 isn't on your retailer shelf you're not going to wander off and say okay let's go try five of them and see if we can detect the the nuances (laughs) but my point is that even 2003 today which was the poster child for being completely dominated by the style of the vintage. Today, in spite of the fact that it is no laser beam of terroir, you wouldn't say that there's no terroir at all. Right. So my point being that with 18, it's more a function of keeping the wines for a sufficient period of time such that they can begin to express their intrinsic terroirs. 19 is probably the most classic of the three meaning 18 19 and 20 was also very hot very dry the one thing that isn't very burgundian about them is they tend to have high alcohols and you can taste that on the finish and so you have a wine that seems perfectly well balanced and it's in spite of the fact that it's ripe the terroir is already there it's not front and center but the terroir is there But when I get to the finish, there is a certain alcoholic aspect to it. Warmth would be the the better word. And one of the reasons that scotch or bourbon, for example, tastes sweet. I mean, they're dry, dry, dry. I mean, there's absolutely no sugar at all, but the ethanol gives you the impression of sweetness. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I find to be a a point of departure for people is whether they really like that little touch of sweetness in the 2019s or they don't. 
And so it is a vintage that I find that some people absolutely adore and other people are more reserved. I like the vintage. I gave it very, very good marks. There were some brilliant wines made, but among the the three, my own favorite is 2020 mm-hmm. for the simple reason that out of the three, it has the best acidities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bob Parker did a lot of really, really good things for the world of wine, but he's sort of the one thing that I completely disagree with him on is that he tended to demonize acidity. Mm-hmm. Acidity wasn't a good thing, basically. And I think that is... If there is something that I might take him to task on, in spite of the fact that I really mean that respectfully, because you know I modeled my ethical approach to Berghound off of what he did, and so Bob, in many respects, was a hero to me. And that's you know when I started out, I said this is what I wanted to be. I wanted to have the the same integrity that Bob used. And so when I say that I respectfully disagree, I really do mean it that way. But he tended to demonize acidity. It just wasn't a good thing. And I, I don't see how you can have super ripe wines with no acidity. And that tends to be what happens when yeah. you look at any fruit. And the, the fruit of the vine is, is no exception. When the growing season starts, you have massive amounts of acidity and no ripeness. And in the growing season, it eventually equilibrates. And exactly where that is and when people pick and what they're looking for stylistically all affects that. But one of the things that 2020 has that you don't get in 18 or 19 is a very good level of acidity. Sometimes it's too much because the the reason that you have that was back to this whole notion of blocage where the ripening process stopped or at least slowed way down. And sometimes it can be too much. So none of the three vintages are perfect, but my own personal favorite is among them is 2020. With that said, don't buy them with the idea that they're going to be good early drinking. It's a structured mm-hmm. vintage. It's meant to go a very long time. And so if, if you're, again, you're sitting at a restaurant and you have a choice, I would say 17 is the best today, right behind that 19. Because it's, it's not as structured, it's not quite as, as marked by the climactic conditions, but in terms of overall quality, I have a, a small preference for 20 versus the other two. Turning to 2021, you have virtually every possibility was made. Um, some of it's absolutely wonderful if vintages that your listeners might have tasted in the in stylistically in the 1970s or the 1980s from time to time, you know, things like that come along. This is an old school vintage. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's wonderful. I happen to like it a lot because you get out of all the vintages that I've talked about, it's by far and away the purest. But if a little bit of green tea or herbal tea aspects to the nose, if if that's not your thing, you're not going to like 21 because almost all of them have a touch. Not all, but most of them have a bit. There's bright acidity. Again, I don't mean to be using euphemisms. Bright acidity does not mean drying, right. but some of them are. Some of them have tannins that aren't ripe because you had virtually every problem under the sun, literally, and to a certain extent, not enough sun. You know, that was, was frost. 
Then you had mildew. Then you had oedium. At the end of the harvest, you had rot. And so people were doing their calculus, which is, look, I already don't have, and in some cases there was even hail, tended to be Gevre and Fisa. So when I say that you basically had every problem possible, it's, I'm not exaggerating. The, but the calculus at the end was you were getting fruit that was ripe. You didn't have thick skins because one of the adaptations that the fruit does when it's very warm is to thicken the skins, which is another reason why hot vintages tend to be dense because that solid to liquid ratio that I talked about right. tends to be higher when the, thins are, when the skins are thicker. 21 didn't have that. And because the skins were thicker, it was easier prey for botrytis. Um, the, the spores can enter more easily when the skins are, are thin. So guys were going, I'm already down 50%. I've got an attack of botrytis. My fruit's not ripe. What do I do? Do I lose another 5% a day hoping for better ripeness? And that's where you find out who's rich and who's not. Because domains, because there's an old Burgundian saying that I, I love, I didn't understand it the first time I heard it, but it said every domain has to have three vintages. Hmm. You know, what the hell does that mean? And you find out that you need one vintage in the vineyards that hasn't been picked yet. You have to have one vintage in the couvery, so, meaning in the in, in your your cav, and then you have one in the bank, <laughs> which means that you can afford to take some risks. But if you're sort of living vintage to vintage, you probably didn't wait. You picked right. fruit that was slightly underripe. I really That's like that. Another reason why mm -hmm. some people just didn't want to take any risk. And other people said, no, I don't care if I only make a quarter of a, of a normal crop. There's no point making a lot of something that's not good. How do you say so, that saying in French? In terms of the, the one vintage in the, the vineyard. Oh, il faut que chaque domaine ait trois millésimes. Nice. I like that. Well, well, thank you. I, I know we've already gone over our, our time here, what is coming up or that people can kind of go check out either your, your 21 reviews or if people want to gift anything for the holidays, we're going to have this out this week. So we still have time. Oh, great. The next issue will be the the 2021 and 2020 Cote de Nuit Reds. Okay. So that's the next issue that will be out in probably the 10th or 12th of January. Okay. Still have vintages for sale. The, the book that I wrote with Doug Barzillay, that's available on the website. And people can subscribe if they're if they're interested in in the wines of Burgundy and, and Pinot Noir. We've always got book projects, but the next one's probably not going to be available until at least 2024. So it's uh, there's nothing to really announce there yet. Awesome. Well, no, I mean they definitely will. We'll have some links to it on in our show notes. And yeah, I encourage everyone to go go either listen or read. There's so much information there. It's just, you know, I've gone through well, your essential audio like three times already. And still, well, thank you. Yeah, just to, to plug that, you know, shameless commercial plug with Burgundy Essentials. If you are interested in a, a primer, bite-sized way to understand the wines of Burgundy. I mean, we spent three years creating it. It really came out of having done lots and lots of symposiums and tastings and 
basically listening to the kinds of questions that we got as to what people wanted to know. But this really was an attempt um, to take somebody who either was a true neophyte or somebody that had a basic understanding, but not more, and go from A to Z. It's like, if I can be pretentious, everything you ever wanted to know about Burgundy without completely geeking out. Yeah, it goes commune by commune, like really gets in there, has a good history section. So yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's available to you on the site. So, Well, thank you so much for your time. And we appreciate catching up maybe again next year and you can hear about that'd be great i'd uh, love to do it i thought the questions were great and i i enjoyed doing this so guys thanks uh, alan appreciate it thank you all right all right well that was our interview with berghound aka alan meadows that was fascinating. I have to say, I we had to cut it there because we would have listened to him for for hours. What, what did you think, Brady? It's great. We'll have to have back for like a like we mentioned a, a fireside chat kind of thing, maybe where we can just listen to stories and and let us know. You know speaking to the audience, let us know what you guys thought about our interview with Alan. If you have anything that kind of you, you would like to dive into deeper in Burgundy, Alan certainly has the experience and answers, and I'm sure stories to go along. So. Maybe we'll do something next year where, you know, we can submit some questions and stuff like that and kind of pull the audience and, yeah, and have a more robust and in-depth conversation. Yeah, no, it'd be great to be able to give people the ability to kind of speak with someone that they, they probably see his ranking, his ratings for a lot of wines, especially if you're buying, you know, some of the, the top tier burgundies. So it'd be cool to be able to give everybody some access to be able to ask him some questions and just hear more stories. So. Yeah, it's funny because if you see, you know, if you see his review notes on on a website, it just says, you know, Berghound. People who don't know who he is might kind of write it off as like, oh, what is this? Like, kind of a, a like or a like it's, a uh, yeah offbeat name kind of thing. I'll just stick with Robert Parker, but he really is, you know, kind of the definitive voice. Yeah, or I think it's like Wine Advocate, where it's like a bunch of people. It's like no Berghound. Sure, is right, right. It's That's good. Just one yeah. guy. It's just Alan. You know. Like beating, More consistency. The, beating the path down there in Burgundy, literally tasting in every cob. So yeah, though that was that was exciting. I, that was something I've always somebody I've always wanted to speak with. And yeah, so for coming up the coming week, just stay tuned for some of our reports that Brady had mentioned before the interview. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.